Hi, this is Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, and we are talking education here today, and we brought in a couple of experts to help us do that. Um, we are speaking with Monica Desaire of Chalkbeat New York, and we are talking to Eliza Shapiro of Politico New York. Welcome to you both. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're both education reporters, and that's why we asked you to be here, so thanks, thanks for joining us. Um, when the mayor was reelected, he sort of, in this press conference the day after the election, declared that education was going to be his top focus of his second term. And that's something I've been curious about since, and I don't know that we've gotten much more information, but what did you make of that, and what is that, has that meant anything to you, or do you think he was just sort of riffing? Yeah, I don't really know what that means. Um, I would say probably the education focus of the second term is going to be delivering on the big education priorities of the first term. Um, so I don't necessarily see that this is going to be an education term. I mean, you could argue term one was all about pre-K, at least politically it was. But term two to me is going to be figuring out how this equity and excellence agenda actually works. 3K is a, is a smaller enterprise than pre-K um, and is dependent on $700 million of federal and state funding that will probably never come through. So while I, I don't I don't know obviously what the mayor has up his sleeve, um, but I don't necessarily, I'm not looking at this term and saying this is going to be a big education term. I'd say, you know, transit, NYCHA, homelessness, affordable housing is really what people are talking and thinking about right now. Yeah, I mean, I think the mayor has made it quite clear that he wants the next chancellor to focus on the same things that he's been working on. I think he was asked point blank at the press conference whether he wanted new ideas, and he sort of said, I'm not really looking for anything new. So in terms of new, <laughs> splashy initiatives, I think we're probably not going to see anything. I think you could make the argument that implementing some of these equity and excellence agenda items is going to be difficult just because they take a lot of money. And I think we're heading into a difficult budget time. Um, if you look at the state, there's a state budget deficit. Um, people are really worried about this new federal tax plan. People are worried that the federal government is just going to cut a lot of money right now. And so how do you implement a bunch of initiatives that take millions of dollars while you're not getting more from the state, having a tough time raising revenue at the city level? So that might be one of the main challenges moving forward. How would you characterize the first term? You know, was it about sort of flailing in search of a direction? Was it about kind of quietly working on a modest agenda? Like, how would you describe, since we're looking ahead, how you describe the first four years? I think, I mean, pre-K clearly would be the main thing that I think most people know about and is definitely a big accomplishment. Um, I think what's difficult is trying to figure out what the vision was out of kind of a lot of different initiatives. And some people think it was a lot of things that was cobbled together. Other people think, you know, it makes a lot of sense because these are key areas in the system that he wanted to improve and now implement. So I think um, in terms of the first term, pre-K was key. And then it was about sort of searching for the initiatives that he thought were going to make a difference at sort of small inflection points. You mentioned, Eliza, mm -hmm. um, equity and excellence. What is that? Is it is it an actual agenda? I mean, it's got it's got pieces. It, it makes some sense to me, but I'm not sure that beyond pre-K, it gets him 
that far in terms of having an education vision? I'm, I'm yeah, not sure. I mean, I think the administration would say this is their blueprint for how they're thinking about how to change the school system. I mean, the, de Blasio has spoken about it in very soaring terms, but when you really look at it, right, it is sort of like a, a bunch of maybe smaller programs that are sold under the banner of a big vision. So there's uh, advanced placement classes for all, uh, college visits for all, computer science for all, but all these individual parts are not only very expensive, but they're, you know, logistically massive challenges. I mean, the concept of for all in a system of 1.1 million kids, most of whom are poor and um, black or Latino kids, is just like a really, really, really big push. And so it's it's a lofty, lofty goal for the mayor, but I think there's been a lot of reporting already that shows you know, for example, uh, Councilman Traeger said to me last week, computer science for all sounds fabulous, but, like, a lot of schools don't actually have, like, wiring mm. to get the internet in the schools to, like, do coding classes. So, like, there's a bunch of baseline challenges before that can get executed. And in some of these schools, there's issues around, I know, you know, with implementing AP for all, having a certain number of AP courses offered to every high school student you're talking about sometimes having to offer them across different schools. I mean, there there are significant yeah, logistical... huge logistical challenges, mm -hmm. as there would be with any program that's marketed for every single kid in a system. Um, but that's obviously de Blasio's sort of bread and butter philosophy. It's just going to be a challenge to execute, to actually execute rather than to promote. And that challenge will fall to the next chancellor, whose idea it wasn't in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm curious about, like, his, his approach to the topic, not even, like, policy-wise, but it struck me that compared to the Bloomberg era, it seemed like controversial education stories were an almost weekly mm -hmm. thing, whether it was about the various reorganizations or the charter school co-location fight, all that stuff. There was some of that drama early on in de Blasio one with the charter school fight, but other than that, it was not... I mean, obviously, it was not his focus the same way it was Bloomberg's focus. Um, and I'm curious if you think that was sort of deliberate to kind of like reduce the temperature a little bit. And what do you feel the consequences of that were to, you know, schools and students? Was it was it better to have this be like less of a daily fight mm -hmm. or to be misimportant stuff because it had a lower profile? Well, I think the mayor and the chancellor have both really explicitly sought to lower the temperature. I mean, Carmen Freenia came in saying, I'm going to restore joy and dignity to the classroom. Now, four years later, she's um, saying to everyone her biggest accomplishment has been doing just that. And obviously, the question is, well, what happens beyond that? I mean, I think the mayor has scored a lot of political points by saying, I'm a public school parent. Both his kids went to New York City public schools. I mean, I think that rhetoric actually won them points for maybe the first two years of the term and beyond. So, um, yeah, is there less day-to-day -day controversy? Yes, and that's obviously intentional. I would say they're the mayor and the chancellor's critics would say that, you know, taking maybe less bold stances on some controversial big-ticket items have left kids in the lurch. I mean, I would well, we not... have to mention the UFT here, right? Like that's, sure. That's, that's the, a lot of the missing conflict. Sure. I mean, yeah, if you were, obviously, Michael Bloomberg was at war with the UFT for a decade. Um, de Blasio has embraced the union sort of without any exception. Um, and I think if you asked a number of critics of the mayor in general, they would say that that perhaps overly cozy relationship has come at the expense of kids. Yeah, I think potentially when you're looking at drawbacks of this approach, you're looking at things like school integration. Um, so if you don't 
take on controversial things, you maybe don't solve sort of really controversial problems. Like how do you integrate schools across the city? And so they've gotten some flack for not taking bold enough moves in areas like that. That and that hasn't that hasn't been a priority of the UFT, right? I mean, the UFT hasn't no, been no, no. especially concerned with that, so it wouldn't necessarily be something that you get prodding from that direction on. Which... No, the union's just playing catch up on it because they're like, "Oh, okay, everyone cares about this now. Okay, mm-hmm. we believe in integration." Right. But... And I on on the on the segregated schools front and the integration. There's a real connection there, right, to this equity and excellence program where the mayor can, and that is his answer when he's asked about desegregating schools, is I want to make every school a great school so that we almost don't even need to worry so much. I mean, and that's that's been criticized quite a bit, that, that approach. Um, do you make anything of it other than that he doesn't want to take on this big fight? I mean, whenever he talks about it, he talks about it like it's this huge historical problem that's rooted in housing and history and racism and to even begin to tackle this problem you're talking about years and years and so he would say sort of in the meantime what we need to do is get all schools to the best possible level that they can be um you know, of course, the problem with that is that if you never tackle the problem, you never tackle the problem, right? So you're sort of saying, um, we're going to raise all boats without looking, I think some critics would say at these underlying issues of you have um, really highly concentrated schools with black and Hispanic students, and poverty and homeless students. And when you have a school that is overwhelmed with all of these kind of problems, um, can it really be fixed with extra AP classes or college trips, you know, I think a lot of people would maybe argue no. And also it's important to remember that the mayor and chancellor did not come into this their roles four years ago thinking they were going to have to tackle school segregation. I mean, obviously this has been a problem in New York City since the beginning of public schools in New York City, but the advocacy arm and the, you know, the the public awareness, obviously heralded by Nicole Hannah-Jones, has actually been a, a, a new and stronger phenomenon, even just in the last two years. So I think they were sort of blindsided by the idea that they were going to have to address it in the first place. In 2013, during the campaign, this is not an issue. Mm. Do you feel that um, in uh, Carmen Farina, uh, that de Blasio got the chancellor he wanted and needed. What's their relationship been like? And, you know, do you think it's sort of delivered what uh, City Hall wanted it to? I, I mean, I think he would say yes to that. I mean, they did sort of take the temperature down. I think they did... Um, in general, do a good job with bringing teachers back into the fold that were maybe frustrated. I think um, when you're looking at drawbacks, you're talking again about this vision question, like was there an ability to sell equity and excellence as more than just a bunch of different things that were cobbled together um, and, and really sort of get people to buy into that vision. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any question politically that Carmen Freña has done precisely what the mayor asked her to do. In every way, optics, you know, she has been in New York City Public Schools for over 50 years. She's a fluent Spanish speaker. So many of the kids in the system obviously speak Spanish. I mean, he cannot replicate the perfection to which Carmen has ascended for him. Truly, truly. Whatever you think of Carmen personally, for the mayor, which is the only metric that matters, she is perfect. And did you have you gotten the sense that they've had a good yes. relationship? And so now he has to replace mm-hmm. her. Um 
what is that looking like? Where are we headed with the new chancellor? We already sort of hit on this big theme that it seems like they're largely looking for someone who can really just continue to execute what they've already put into place. But you also disagree if you want, obviously, but you also need someone in that position who is good politically, right? It's, you know, that and the NYPD, you know, commissioner, you know, maybe the two most visible posts in an administration. So you want someone who can do both. Yeah, I would just say the important thing to remember at the chancel search is that it doesn't matter what anybody thinks except for Bill de Blasio. So whatever opinions any other human being has about who the chancellor should be is really irrelevant. Um, so here's what you should know about who the chancellor is not going to be um, based on a story that I reported yeah, you had a recently. Good, good piece on this. I can say without equivocation that the chancellor will not be a white man. The Sorry, Ben. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <I'm> out. Ben's <laughs> out. Um, the chancellor will have to be someone who toes the line really delicately on charters and reform and really doesn't go over the, you know, pro-reform edge um, without question. And they're not particularly interested, even though it might sound contradictory, it's not going to be like a deputy chancellor in the DOE. They want someone still with some kind of rising star power idea, claim to fame, which, of course, seems contradictory, right? They want someone to execute Carmen Freenia's vision while also sort of being a star in their own right. So that's like a very delicate balance. But I'm telling you, this is what he wants. And so that's what they are doing right now. Until they settle on a sure. deputy commissioner because nobody else will take the job. I think <laughs> I think that it is a fallacy to think that people will not take this no, job. No, no, yeah. I, 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 it is arguably the most important education job in America. So even if you hate Bill de Blasio's guts... You're not going to do this job for more than three and a half years, and then you're going to be, you know, the most famous educator in America besides Betsy DeVos, so mm -hmm. you should probably do the job. What do you think on the next <laughs> next chancellor? Yeah, I mean, I think that when you look at all those lists of knots, it's hard in some ways to find someone, mm -hmm. right? Um, when you're looking at someone who can carry out Carmen Freña's vision but isn't an insider, um, when you're looking at someone who really has the right sort of track record on reform or not reform, and then you do add to that these sort of other difficulties of um, salary issues, the New York City Chancellor gets paid a lot less than other superintendents of large school systems, uh, you know, you're looking at taking an outsider, so you're looking at someone who's going to uproot their life. Uh, take a lower salary and then execute a vision that's already been laid out for them instead of putting their own footprint on the process. So I think when you when you put all of those factors in, it's going to be tough to find that perfect person. Hmm. Do you think, I mean, I know de Blasio's opinion is the one that matters most, but would finding, is it possible to find someone who's going to make it easier for the city to get what it needs out of Albany, including renewal of control and budget stuff? I mean, is there somebody that could, you know, make that argument easier than, than it is? I just don't think they care about that. That is not what Bill de Blasio is looking for. That could be like a helpful side effect. I mean, you've seen how the mayor approaches stuff in Albany. I mean, he's not going to pick a chancellor for the America's largest school system based on their prowess with like, you know, getting in a room with Jeff Klein. It's just not a priority. Is on the reform side of things, I mean, it, from my vantage point, that's part of where a lot of the pressure has really been relieved from the balloon. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. things happened in Albany. The mayor had some major setbacks there to what he wanted. But it's sort of old news at this point, right? The reform folks mostly won. I, I don't know. Well, if I would take 
I okay. Would totally how, how would you? How, okay. How would you? <laughs> um, I actually think, uh, and I did an investigation. Well, Cuomo reversed well, so a lot the, of the, the, the direction he was heading. Yeah, and that actually has just enormous, widespread consequences. I would say, uh, four years ago, New York City was seen as the education reform capital of America. That role has been utterly diminished in the last two and a half years. Yes, charters are growing. Evaluation reform is dead. dead yeah. Teacher tenure reform is dead, and that is because of Andrew Cuomo, and that is like a huge, huge, huge change for what was once seen during Michael Bloomberg's tenure as the education reform city of America, the city to which every other city that was trying to figure it out was looking towards. Now it's D.C. or parts, mm -hmm. you know, Denver. There are other places that are doing it. People are not looking to New York anymore. Yeah, yeah I, I meant more in the de Blasio versus the reformers when he was. Oh, sure. You know, yeah. yeah, but 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 great points. And and so, but on the reform front, even though that temperature has been taken way down, he's looking for a Richard Bury type of person who is friendly enough. But you know, his will be his guy. But I mean, obviously, you know, there was talk about Richard Bury stepping into this role. He's not going to. But. Um, he's looking for someone who's friendly enough with the reformers because he doesn't want the huge battles, or is that not? He doesn't. Go ahead. Yeah, I just, um, I don't know what huge battles are coming is the question, right? Because Albany has sort of switched so far in the other direction. Um, mm -hmm. Like, as you said, sort of Cuomo has changed his mind on a lot of this stuff. The Board of Regents has really taken a totally different direction from where they were. Um when you're talking on lawmakers, there's not a lot of hunger for some sort of massive reform effort. Uh, so, I mean, I'm working on a story now about Carmen Farina is going to testify on Wednesday. Um, and I'm just trying to figure out what would she even want? You know, <laughs> what are they looking for at Albany? Mostly money, I think, and maybe money for 3K. Uh, but it doesn't seem like they're priorities other than getting funding really rest on their relationship with Albany right now. Also, like, remember the political stakes of the of the big fight with Eva Moskowitz in, in 2014. It was like, oh my god, is this going to mean de Blasio doesn't get reelected, right? This is second term, again, three and a half year chancellor. I just don't think it matters really. I mean, I don't think he's going to pick a fight with the reformers, but it's also important to remember, again, this is a guy with like a very clear set of values, I mean, it's, he does not believe really in charter schools. So I don't imagine that his reformer will be, you know, I think a, a Bury corollary would be the furthest the person the furthest would go. The furthest to the reform. I wanted to ask yeah. about charters and the discussion about kind of the reform conversation writ large. Um, has the city reached some sort of like quiet, um, unofficial detente on charter schools that like they had the big fight, Eva Moskowitz got the law, they have access to space now, they're going to grow at some slow pace, but mm -hmm. have we kind of got beyond the sort of big big battle over charters that everyone sort of thought was occurring in 2014 and, and thought a bigger one was coming? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, Eva Moskowitz, who's like the leader of this movement in some ways, you know, has had a complicated few years since that happened. She had a lot of really negative press reports in the Times, um, Families for Excellent Schools, which is also sort of led... Not just the, the Times. And, and Politico <laughs> New York uh, and other places. But in other words, she's had a pretty complicated few years um, that has sort of weakened her politically somewhat. She's still very powerful and influential. Families for Excellent Schools, which is sort of a, the advocacy arm of success, has really, really been damaged in the last two years after like a pretty disastrous... Um, 
pro-charter fight in Massachusetts that has led, like, the national charter um, sector to just, like, hate their guts, basically. Um, so I would say, yeah, like, I'm not seeing a looming battle here. The mayor has no interest in dealing with charters. Yes, they're going to have to grow. Yes, they're here to stay. But he's just like, leave me alone. I don't want to talk about it. And and for him to have some sense of being further proven, quote unquote, right about charters, he needs someone to come in and get his stuff done in, in, a sh- in you know, the three and a half years you're talking about to get that equity and excellence in a better position. And one of the things we didn't mention on that is this literacy um, focus that he has stated and seems to be along with 3K maybe towards the top of the list of the second term in education that he wants all students reading at grade level by the third grade when testing starts. Um, what has to happen there? Are we? Is that going to be something because he's making it a focus that's going to get a lot of scrutiny here? I think it's just it's just going to be so tough, right? Getting all students to be reading on third grade is a really hefty task. And so um, I see it similar to a lot of the other equity and excellence things, which is that it makes a lot of sense. It's hard to argue with that, right? Of course, we want all students reading on third grade, but it's all about implementation. And like a lot of the other equity and excellence things, it's on this huge timeline, you know, it's like 10 years in the future, we'll have all students reading on third grade. So it's really hard in the interim to judge how it's going or whether it makes sense or how it's working in schools because, uh, you know, a lot of it is about how it's working in individual schools. It might be working really well in a school in Brooklyn and not so well in a school in the Bronx. So how do you look at it systematically? Hmm. You've done some reporting recently on um, funding um, inequities or equities among (laughs) schools, which is something that the governor alluded to in his state of the state speech and might have um, a role in the budget process be a topic there. Talk about what you found and what do you think the implications are for the city? Yeah, so the governor didn't say a ton about education in his state of the state, but he talked about giving more money to poor schools, which is kind of new and different. And the way he wants to do that is actually to have the Division of Budget and the State Education Department approve local school districts' budgets to make sure they're sending enough money to poor schools. Uh, And it's really unclear whether he is trying to look at New York City, but in the first year of this proposal, it would only be the big five you know, city school districts, which includes New York City. He also shout out, shouted out New York City in his speech. Um, so what I took a look at was the city's fair student funding formula, which was supposed to do just this more than 10 years ago, to send money to where the neediest students are in the city. So uh, once the city gets the money from the state, where's it then going within the city? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So the, the city puts its own money in, the state puts its own money in, and there's some federal money. They take that pot of money and then give it to schools, and it's how that money is distributed. Um, and the problem is that this funding formula has never been fully phased in. So the amount that we were supposed to get to has never quite got there, and you've sort of frozen these disparities that existed before the funding formula was even adopted. So I think the question is, do we go through this process and New York City is a model because it does have this sort of this funding formula that on paper is supposed to do these things? Um, or does the governor and people at the state look at it and say, actually, you know, New York City hasn't quite been able to fulfill its promise. That being said, the city, of course, is going to say that it's the state fault for not giving them the money to actually fully phase in the formula. So <laughs> potential battle brewing. Okay, okay. Um, the One of the other big um, controversial items has been the renewal schools. 
Um, my quick thinking about term two is there'll be more focus on the renewals and what's going to happen there. He's going to have to deliver more on this literacy thing that, you know, we just talked about a little bit. 3K, you know, I, I have those sort of at the top of my list when I think about things. Um, renewals, I mean, where is that heading? They just made announcements on that, but... Is... Yeah, so I think we're going to see some, like, really interesting um, unfolding from, you know, the first round of renewal school closures that were announced late last year. I mean, the mayor is going to have to close a bunch of schools really in the next year, which is obviously something he swore up and down ascent basically that he would never do with very few exceptions. But here we are and a bunch of schools are closing. The city's going to have to, A, close them without totally flipping out all the parents, find other jobs for the teachers, open new schools in their place, and then at the end of next academic year, look at 46 schools that are still in the renewal program and see how many of them they're going to close. Um, we just did a, a little bit of a data dig and found out that most of those schools are doing you know, they've shown some improvement, but they're really far away from having kids be proficient in, in math and English. Some are backsliding on some metrics. I mean, those schools, that's a lot of schools left in that program, are still really struggling, and there's a, a lot, many more difficult decisions n not too far down the horizon. Yeah, I, I think it's also really important to note that when we're talking about renewal school progress and whether they made progress on metrics, um, that the metrics themselves have changed over the time that the this, these schools were in this program. So state English tests particularly got easier. Um, it got easier to graduate over this time mm -hmm. period, so it's such a moving target to try to figure out if this program is working. And these renewal goals are mostly pretty weak. Isn't that a big... Yeah, you guys have done really good... Chalkbeat has done really good reporting showing that, you know, in some cases it's actually become easier to, like, score well on your metrics if you're a renewal school. I mean, the data is changing and the DOE has, has answers for some of this. But, yeah, I mean, I think the data doesn't tell the whole story, but from what we've seen... Yeah, I mean, it's, listen, it's, like, really, really hard to turn around schools. I think a lot of people would argue that these schools never had enough time in the first place, but we're also talking about half a billion dollars at this point. People, you know, for that taxpayer expense want to see results that maybe we haven't seen yet. Hmm. Toward the end of the Merrill campaign, we have the, the slaying of the student at the high school in the Bronx, and that briefly sort of broached the topic of school safety and where it stood under de Blasio. Obviously, there have been reforms to reduce suspensions. Um, and, and folks broached the topic of whether or not, you know, there was more violence than was being reported. Do you think there's something there? Is there, a, is, is there room for reporting and concern along the lines of how safe the schools are, or was that just a blip? Uh I mean, I think any sort of school discipline reform is just really, really tough, right? Because the issue, of course, is that there's more black and Hispanic students that they get suspended at much higher rates than white students. And you have people saying that this looks like the school it's a prison pipeline, right? That you're getting kicked out of school and mistreated. You're arrested more in schools, things like that. Um, so what de Blasio has tried to do is something called restorative justice, which is less harsh discipline, sort of an ability to talk out these problems. Um, I think with any sort of sweeping policy like that, you're going to see some sort of drawback. And the drawback in this case might be that schools are finding it trouble to discipline students that really need to be disciplined. And so I think it's um, it's always going to be a bit of a trade-off, but you have to keep in mind the original purpose of it. Yeah, and I would say also, like, one of the big problems is that 
the data sources for actually looking about school safety statistics are really flawed across the board. So we really do not have a good picture of what's going on in schools. Schools can over-report or under-report depending on their own individual political needs. I mean, the state system for categorizing student safety data is basically so broken that the former commissioner, John King, said don't look at it. Um, the NYPD statistics, I would say, are a slightly better metric, but they're also not perfect. But I would say generally the problem with this whole discussion about school safety is that it's really devolved into a proxy war to talk about how bad are New York City schools really. So the charter people are saying, oh my God, schools are in chaos, they're running amok, look at this set of data. And the DOE and sort of, you know, restorative justice advocates are saying, okay, well, look at this set of data that shows that schools are getting fairer. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle, but the hysteria on either side is, like, really counterproductive. It, I, I mean, this is one of these situations where I also wonder how much the Success Academy sort of model of discipline um, is sometimes left out of out of the conversation. I know people have tried to to bring it in, and you know I'll fully admit I'm a I'm a major skeptic of how they approach things. I know you know the test scores are incredible and can't be explained away by you know too tough discipline. Um, but is is that driving the conversation that the the sort of reform sector thinks they have it figured out um, or well, well, no excuses discipline, which is like a model where, you know, kids have to sit a certain way and you kind of get essentially demerits. I mean, that is just going out of style across the country. I mean, I think there's been a lot of reporting that's really ruffled feathers when you see how these kids are treated. There's a lot more parents and kids speaking out about the, what they felt is the harsh discipline they faced in charter school. So actually, politically, the mayor is going down a direction that's more popular, which is like, let's take a step back, figure out how to make discipline and suspensions more equitable. I would say that the success model is just, it's just going out of fashion everywhere. Yeah, and I think the success model is really to one extreme. It's definitely different than a lot of these schools that are starting like restorative justice practices. They definitely didn't have and such a lot of charters don't and a lot practice of charters, yeah, the same. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, just schools, as we move toward the end here, I think uh, just a couple of questions left. Um, schools as sort of physical spaces is something that's come up in, in our reporting, frankly, about the rezonings and the fact that, like, not a lot of neighborhoods are going to grow in population and will the schools be there. Um, to what extent is that part of the conversation, like school seats, the quality of facilities? And I know that there's a new uh, chairperson of the Education Committee in the City Council, and you know, is that going to be something he wants to talk about? Yeah, that's Mark Traeger, the Brooklyn Councilman who now runs the um, City Council's Education Committee. That's really his top priority. It has been his top education priority for the last four years, and I spoke to him recently, and he said... That's really going to be what he focuses on. So that's not a particularly sexy issue. People don't talk about it that much. Um, but certainly there's no doubt that some school buildings, which are very old in New York City, are crumbling. You know, certainly some schools, particularly in central Queens and parts of Brooklyn, are really overcrowded. Um, but it's not an issue that, it gets, it's an issue that gets parents motivated. It's not necessarily one that, you know, lawmakers are scrambling all over themselves to, to litigate and figure out. But Mark Traeger is, is very, very interested in, in facilities and infrastructure. And that debate over class sizes, where does, where does that stand? I mean, there's obviously a lot of people who argue 
smaller class sizes make teachers able to give individual attention better and and to you know it ties back into sometimes the discipline conversation um and then there's been a lot of discussion about all that really matters is a great teacher and i i think carmen farina has been more on the latter right she's been more of a believer in get a good teacher up there it doesn't matter how many kids are in the class and so has eva moskowitz i mean listen to people who you know it's meaningful that there's consensus among Eve Moskowitz and Carmen Farina about class size. Um, you don't want to have a class of 45 kids, but I think research is trending away from the idea that, like, if you have more than 25 kids, the classroom is going to devolve into chaos. I mean, Eva and Carmen are both people who know what they're talking about, and I think it's meaningful for the rest of us non-educators to realize that they feel the same way about class size. I think that issue has become marginalized for a good reason. Interesting. So as we wrap up here um, with Eliza Shapiro of Politico New York and Monica Desser of Chalkbeat New York, uh, I just have one more topic I'll, I'll bring us to. Um, well, and we also want, if there's anything we haven't mentioned that you guys um, think we should, we should touch on, on, on education here as we look ahead um, to the mayor's second term in just 2018, 2019-ish in general. Um, the pro schools, the community schools, are there things around, you know, we talked a little bit about the renewal school program. There's all these different programs. Every community, every renewal school is a community school, but not every community school is a renewal school. Um, the pro schools, which are sort of supposed to be this attempt at within the UFT contract to loosen up some of the work rules and be a little bit more experimental. Um, has that gone anywhere? Um, it's not something I've followed. It's not something I've seen much announcements on. It just sort of occurred to me prepping for this conversation. Is that anywhere? Yeah, I mean, I think the union is excited about it. They definitely have a lot more schools that are pro schools now than when they started. Um, pro schools do things like some pro schools are actually interested in integration, which is pretty interesting. Uh, some schools change the way that teachers teach classes things like that, I think it tends to be a little bit of a less sexy issue because, again, it's just sort of um, a bunch of different experiments. I think probably the main critique of it is that it's not experimental enough uh, and that there is not these sort of really interesting innovations coming out of it. The union would definitely disagree with that. They think that this is um, the way that they've sort of set it up is an alternative to charter schools in a sense, right? A way to be innovative within district schools and to have these teacher-driven models. Anything you want to add on, on the pros? I mean, I would say it's just like kind of probably not really gone anywhere near where the city... I mean, li I mean literally, if Bear, Bill de Blasio is saying, like, this is going to be the counterpoint to charter schools nationally, I mean, under that set of whatever, I mean, it has failed to, to reach that lofty goal. It was a good goal. talking point when they signed the contract, Sure, but it's also right? nowhere. I mean, no one promotes it. No yeah. one talks about it. I think the last person I talked about it was Randy Weingarten three years ago. <laughs> I mean, people are yeah. not talking about it because it hasn't done, which you could have said from the day it was announced. I mean, how on earth are these collection of schools that, you know, maybe have an extra hour of instructional time going to prove that we don't need charter schools? It's a ridiculous concept. And so we need to maybe reevaluate that and keep an eye on that sure. as we also look there's a new another contract being negotiated as yeah. there was at, uh, basically at this time four years ago. Yeah. Well, plenty well, to chew on. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. Monica Desair and Eliza Shapiro, thanks so much for uh, taking us to school. <laughs> thanks, guys. Thank you.